0: Hello everybody who is watching and hello everybody who isn't
1: watching as well, just to be all inclusive. I'm, I'm John Atack, and yet again, I welcome my friend and colleague, Joe Zimhart. Hi, Joe.
0: Hello, John. Thanks for having me on again. And uh, what are we talking about today?
1: Well, first of all, I'd like to congratulate you on presenting your pet rock the last time we spoke as, as a demonstration of complete stillness in yes. the universe except when I you move have. it around of course you know but um <laughs> yeah. you you've just invented a term so i think we ought to broadcast it as far as we can which is cult leader syndrome and um yeah i i, I think you should trademark it personally but
0: well um, I'll, I'll give it a go but um this <laughs> is the first public uh demonstration so um well, we send this to the copyright in... office and make sure you know yeah so John we're entering into virgin territory here are you ready oh. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, i'll explain like i explained before what happened i uh, briefly i was writing a re- I wrote a review about andrew cohen's new book about being a bodhisattva uh that came out this year andrew cohen was famously ran a, an organization called face friends of andrew cohen everywhere and uh, that was the name of his cult, Face. Hmm. And he also had a, a thing called uh, Enlightened Next. It was one word. And he believed Enlighten in something Next. called evolutionary enlightenment that you could that we all evolving toward enlightenment, sort of, in, in in some kind of a magical spiritual way. And, and that he's one of the key figures that's pushing the human race toward that evolution. That's how he he built himself. And he's still. He's coming out now after being disgraced by the cult collapsing under him and then kicking, they kicked him out. And uh, four or five books, including one by his mother called The Mother of God, was written to expose his shenanigans as a brat.
1: I just want to pause on that title. You know, what a great name for a book, The Mother of God. His own mother was involved with him and left and wrote a book. He was involved for like eight
0: years and broke away. and, And he wanted her to see him as God. Or mm. as Atman or whatever, you know, the yeah. non dual presence. And uh uh right, and, and considering that they were Jewish, it even has a double entendre, Mother of God. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Luna Tarno, I had lunch with her, a wonderful lady. She was a poet and, and after she wrote the book we you know, I interviewed her in New York and, and we had a good lunch. Uh but all that aside, uh so I wrote this review and in, in the the editors at, at International Cultic Studies Association for the magazine felt that I had overdone it and got into too much territory and that it was more like an article. And And so somehow I blurted out that, you know, what I'm really writing about it, this guy has cult leader syndrome. And they kind of tweaked their interest and, and uh, they said, well, why don't you write about that? You know, and I said, OK, so I started looking it up. And of course, there is no such thing as cult leader syndrome in, in terms of any kind of legitimate literature. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I'm ever the first person that said it because it didn't come up anywhere. <laughs> and so, so I started looking into it, and of course, a syndrome is an illness, and it's 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 mm-hmm. a form of illness. And and so let's this is what a syndrome is. It's a set of medical signs and symptoms which are correlated with each other and often associated with a particular disease or disorder. The word derives from the Greek blah blah blah, meaning concurrence when a syndrome is paired with definite cause, this becomes a disease. So Mm -hmm. something has to cause it some thing. So with a guru syndrome, what's causing it is self-identification as a guru. When there's really a lot of evidence to show that they're not very good teachers, you know, so they still believe in it. So it's kind of a delusion, which now we're getting into psychological medical territory, you know, and, Mm -hmm. uh, Uh, So if it continues, and it, even after they've been disgraced, uh, and and like this Andrew Cohen is reinventing himself, like so many others have, uh, L. Ron Hubbard, for instance, kept reinventing himself. Um, The founder of S, Werner Earhart, went and taught the same thing in Europe after being disgraced in the U.S. You know, the list goes on and on. And uh, uh, so you you have this problem of is this a syndrome is this an illness now they can't stop doing it you know kind of like someone with a fixed delusion uh so i started exploring this and and the only thing i could come up with which was close was called imposter syndrome which is in the literature which is a thing you know and 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 that is um something that that came around in 1968 and was coined much later, a couple of decades later as a real thing in regards to articles about women who had achieved, you know, in the eighties and nineties, high corporate levels of accomplishment and yet felt they didn't belong there, felt they were imposters, Mm -hmm. even though their peers thought they were brilliant, you know, so they had what was coined as imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And uh, because they, they, almost needed therapy to overcome this anxiety, you know, and and of a feeling like a fake mm. when they weren't. Now, if you flip that over, because you and I were talking about this, you know, most of the cult leaders that we criticize in, in, in our world, to some degree or another are fakes. Yeah. You know, in other words, they don't live up to the reality they claim to represent. Mm. So in other words, they're faking. And, and, you know, does, is that a syndrome? Okay, I'm gonna throw in one more thing here because this is important. As you know, in our community, uh, we are often uh, criticized by the, the social science community, the sociologists who of religion especially that want to see these deviant, what we call deviant groups as just alternative religious movements or new religious movements or you know something like that or maybe softly a sect but they don't like the word cult they don't like the the uh that derogatory whatever it is uh, behind it mm-hmm. so to address that in this paper um i had to address this problem of uh, of medicalizing social behavior which these sociologists hate mm-hmm. and you know they've they've written. I mean, there's whole um, uh, papers done on medicalizing deviance, which cults fall under that as deviant religious groups, and yep. and the psychological community and the anti-cult community has medicalized it by saying, well, it's delusional, it's psychotic, it's it's um, you know, it, it has narcissistic traits, and these are all medical terms hmm. within the psychological field, right? And sociologists tend in that clique of sociologists tend not to like that. Like by that clique, I mean, Anson Shoup and uh, Lewis and uh, Melton. and you know the names? There's about I do. 10 Jeffrey, Jeffrey Haddon and one or two. Haddon and, and uh, Cessnor, you know, the group Cessnor? Yes, I um, do. There you is. know, so there were, they're the ones that would argue that we should not medicalize deviance. So okay, so there. I'll leave it at that because I'm I'm in the middle of this thinking, and I'm not sure where I'm going to go with it, but I am going to face it. F A C E Friends of Andrew Cohen Everywhere. We're going to face that and see if it's, you know, leading to him becoming a, a guru with cult leader syndrome. All
1: right. Yeah. Fire away at me, John. I will. <laughs> I will. Um. Yeah. I mean. Uh, we also. We we get to the edge of mass sociogenic illness if we're going to um, try and understand the cultic phenomenon, and that this is like you know the Salem witch trials, as as you well know, um, or uh, the Devils of Loudon, which became right. the the incredibly strange Ken Russell film, The Devils, um, and this is the idea that a group of people can be possessed by uh, a set of ideas. This is pushed forward a, a little bit. so bandy Lee, for example, and and my friend Stephen Moffick are looking at what they call social psychiatry, which is the idea of a group developing mm. um, a set of symptoms. I, I, I must say that that I stand with trepidation on the brink of this idea, um, but I you know the idea that psychosis can belong to a group, a sociogenic mm. illness, the idea that we adopt um behaviors that belong in our group which could go you know from genuflecting um through to um ritual murder in the case of say the manson family where you have mm-hmm. a uh, an ethos a creed that belongs to a group and a lot of what we're talking about is how we should define these behaviors and i think there's been a problem with social science that they don't want to believe that these behaviors exist or they want to get rid of any, any words we can use to label it. So you have this peculiar idea, which I'm sure you've encountered once or twice, that the belief is that we think that there are brainwashed zombies. There are people you know, who are completely put under the control. And what a cult group is, is mm-hmm. where you have hundreds or thousands or even millions of people who are utterly compliant. And- well, they're
0: under a spell. No, under a spell, way. I do. I like look, that.
1: I do as well. I've come back to that year in year out. That mm-hmm. what what used to be called enchantment is now yes. called hypnosis, and that so there's a recognition that people can fall for ideas, and they can then follow them on. And generating those ideas are these people. And when we look at I don't know Prabhupada, Rajneesh, um, uh, Osho. Rajneesh, um, uh, Sun Myung Moon, Elrond Hubbard, uh, Ayn Rand, that, and, and there are hundreds and hundreds of these people through history. Um, Mary Baker Eddy, um, Madame Blavatsky, Gurdjieff, on and on and on, this list of people. When we look at them, I think that, that what you're saying um, is an important, very important idea because these people don't seem to have proper um, self-criticism. They don't seem to be able to understand their own behavior. And whenever they go wrong, they blame someone else, mm. you know, which is a characteristic, of course, of the sociopath generally and malignant narcissists, psychopaths, whatever we want to call them, are predators, that the ability to apologize, the ability to accept responsibility seems to have gone away. And they, therefore, because it's the fault of others, generate this um, godlike sense. I'm going to tell a little story. Um, When I first met Jerry Armstrong in 1984, in June 1984, he told me about a little scale that he'd found written in Hubbard's private papers.
0: Let the people know who Jerry Armstrong is, because I know, I know.
1: Yes. Um, Jerry was... uh, Worked with Ron Hubbard in Scientology. He was a member of the Sea Organization. Um, he ran Intelligence you know, to tell cover stories for the um, Scientology ships in the Mediterranean. And um, very loyal follower of, of Ron Hubbard, a very intelligent man. And he, um, while they were kind of clearing up to make it look as if Ron Hubbard didn't run Scientology, So they were destroying swathes of documents because it was thought the FBI were going to come and do a second raid on Scientology, the largest raid in the history of the FBI in July 1977 was on Scientology. Um, And it was thought in the late 70s, 1979, 80, that this was going to happen again. So they were shredding masses of documents that showed Hubbard's direct control of everything in Scientology. And a woman came to Jerry Armstrong and said, "I've found twenty-two boxes of material about Ron Hubbard. Should we shred them?" And Jerry went and looked at this material, and to his amazement, found these twenty-two boxes. I'm presuming they were kind of banker's box size. Had been traveling around the world since the foundation of Dianetics in 1950. Where other Hubbard went, this huge, you know, pack yeah. collection of boxes would go. In them were things such as his baby boots, um, oh. mater- uh, letterhead that he'd stolen from many places, including the u s. Navy, that he would use for and and various Navy forms that he would fill in for his own benefit. There is, for example, um a separation order for Ron Hubbard that shows that he has twenty one medals, um including a couple of purple hearts along the way and it's a fake it's a forgery it actually has inconsistencies in it um in fact the the purple hearts are awarded with the wrong in the wrong form had actually and, got ho- hold of certainly the government doesn't back him no the the he received four standard medals which are for or three for being in a particular area of combat um he never right. actually saw combat and and, and
0: just to finish jerry he was one of the first to really Take on the brunt of Scientology's rebuttal, you know, against well, it, right? It it's kind yeah. of interesting because it it really
1: you know it really does go back to 1951 when Dr. Mm-hmm. Joseph Winter produced a doctor's report on Dianetics, having worked closely with Hubbard, and that's the beginning of it. By the time I wrote in 1990, there had been 14 books in English about Scientology, yeah. one way or another. I think the most important character was probably a man called James Phelan, who in 1963. Exposed Hubbard's um, lies about his educational background, showing that Hubbard mm. was not, in fact, a nuclear physicist as he frequently claimed. <laughs> he was not a civil engineer and he was not a mathematician. He was thrown out of <clears throat> George Washington University for deficiency in scholarship. He was put on probation and never returned. Mm. But and then there was Michael Lynn Shannon, who's you know I didn't have access to Jerry's documents when I wrote a piece of Blue Sky. Um, But I did have Shannon's documents and he'd spent years collecting material. But Jerry, you know, he got it. He went to Hubbard and and went, oh, can can I collect material, biographical material into an archive? Hubbard said yes. Now, normally within two weeks, he would have rescinded that order because that's the way Hubbard worked. Uh, Hmm. But he went into hiding and um, Jerry got two years to collect material and collected a huge amount of material uh, about Ron Hubbard's life, which is called the L. Ron Hubbard Archive. Um, I've been told that by the time Jerry left, there were 600,000 items in that archive. Um, And there are some fascinating things uh, in in among there, like Hubbard in uh, August, 1938, a, a letter, typed letter to his first wife, um called the skipper letter dear skipper it reads where he says my only goal is to smash my name into history so hard that even if all the books are destroyed i'll be remembered or words fairly close to that um which is not quite what he told his followers so anyway um jerry told me that uh, there was a black magic ceremony called the blood ritual which hubbard's biographer Omar garrison showed to me at one point a handwritten ceremony where Hubbard made a pact in the 1940s with Hathor, the Egyptian goddess, using his own mm. blood, um, so that he would live under her dominion and command. Um, she's also known as the Scarlet Woman, the Whore of Babylon, or the Empress. There are various, Nat Kali, uh, Diana, Artemis, wherever you go. You'll yeah, find. he was trying to out
0: Crowley Crowley at the time. Or Very much so. He he yeah.
1: believed, and and of course at the <laughs> end of his, his life in, in a document that was only seen by a very small number of top-level Scientologists, people who'd got through to the highest level, OT8, for a week. Two years after Hubbard died in 1988, these people were treated to a a document where Hubbard claimed that he was the Antichrist, that he was Mm. Lucifer. He had come to destroy Christianity. After a week, this document was withdrawn, but it was too late. It had already escaped, and Mm. I'd seen it. I'd actually seen it before
0: then, but we won't get into that. Well, you know, yawn, how many people have claimed that before Hubbard? Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. Well, you and, know, what, what's the big deal? Antichrist. It, OK, let's move on. Okay, successful so was Let's he? move on with, but, with but, Jerry. But, but, you, but yeah. yeah,
1: let me the specific document that I'm referring to uh-huh. is a scale that Hubbard had left saying and, you know, I will misremember it. And, and Jerry's probably not watching this, so we're probably all right. But as far as I recollect, it's something to the extent of animals, laborers, farmers, and it then goes up to fanatics and zealots. And above Mm -hmm. fanatics and zealots, you have the fool, and above the fool, you have God. And what Hubbard in a lecture in 1952, December 52, talks about the fool card in the tarot and how important Mm -hmm. this is. And he's very pretty evidently referring to the Book of Thoth, by Alistair Crowley. He makes three references in those lectures to Crowley, calls him his good friend, which was not in wow. fact true. Um, and in the Book of Thoth, we have, a, as you know, we have a pretty full description of the meaning of each tarot card. Hubbard focuses in, we identify it with with Crowley because he says the fool has an alligator snapping at his heels. Most tarot packs have a dog, not an alligator mm-hmm. on them um, Crowley's has an alligator. And in this, he, in his lecture, he's saying that the fool is the transcendent state. This is the point where nothing can touch you. All energy goes through you. You have achieved, you know, this wonderful state. And it becomes apparent when we think back that he'd written this little scale that he considered himself to have achieved this position of the fool, because what was underneath him, what he was trying to create were fanatics and zealots. And so that self-conceit thats you know, that's where this long journey has gone to, this long meander has gone to, that self-conceit that Hubbard had, which again came out in various places. You know, he was the Antichrist. He was Lucifer. He was the source. And that term started out as the source of Scientology. And he wasn't that. He stole it from all sorts of places. Uh, I wrote a paper called um, Possible Origins of Dianetics and Scientology, which is available on this channel, um, showing the many, many things that he took from Alastair Crowley and others and then claimed were his. And he then elevates himself to this position, which is originally the source of Scientology. But he then comes to believe he's the Demiurge. He is the creator of the universe. He is God. Um, I wrote a little, you know, when, piece of blue sky let's sell these people a piece of blue sky was first published in 1990 i made the statement that i believed that his intention was to be deified um you know like the romans and like the chinese where an ancestor by their name being repeated continues to exist uh, right my only goal is to smash my name into history 1938 alron hubbard and that self-conceit which seems to dwell with Almost as a bipolar condition, that that these people are excessively full of themselves. Somebody like say Maharaji, you know, who believes Mm -hmm. he is God, or Osho the Buddha, um, who called himself Bhagwan or the Supreme One. Um, Mm -hmm. They seem to have this conceit, and as you say. They continue to screw up, they prophesy, they predict, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses. The world's going in 1914, 1919, 1930, on and on and on. I think 2033 is their next date for extinction. And somehow, because cognitive dissonance is what it is, they believe more firmly when they're proven wrong than they did, you know, at the outset. So I I think that that imperviousness where you know they they have occasional collapses where they you know as as Hubbard very certainly did where they tell people around them they are an imposter so this is an interesting thing about hubbard that you know i have record of an interview from somebody who was with him in 1950 somebody who was with him in 1973 and from Serge Fouth who was with him at the end of his life and on all three occasions he's telling these people I've achieved nothing. I've done nothing. This is all fake. But most of the time, he returns to that idea. And I think essential to Hubbard is is nobody else was capable of discovering the technology. Nobody else could add anything significant. Nobody had ever done anything significant. And his claims became more and more grandiose. Um, In a book called Fundamentals of Thought, he claims to have given the only ideas a value in 50,000 years of thinking men.
0: Yeah. Interesting.
1: But, so you you have this sense that the cult leader syndrome, you know, maybe that opens it out a bit further. There might well have some doubt, but it's very private. They will then sell, you know, their certainty, which of yeah. course is entirely fabricated and usually well, let, let up me, by
0: deception. Let me follow this back into the discussion whether or not we're just medicalizing deviance yes you know for the sake of our own bias as <laughs> a sociologist religion or religion might say so we we brought up the word spell which is a common word in fact one of the translations of mantra is to cast a spell in india you know you use a god you invoke a god and you you invoke him to do certain favors uh through a sacrifice or whatever and you do a mantra to the god And the God will somehow return that favor, much like the universe brings it to you, or whatever, you know. So you're casting a spell in order, and and of course, Wicca and the old witch thing have done this for eons, you know, in in the neo-Pagan worldview. So, so we have that, that that they have this power to cast a spell. Now, is that delusional? If that's delusional, then we're involved in something called. You know, and and if they get somebody else to believe in it, that they can really cast spells. We're in a in a area of folia do, shared delusion, which is a legitimate diagnosis of medicalizing someone with that. I mean, I've had people under folia do in the psych hospital where I worked often. They would come in, and uh, a, an adult daughter would believe in their mother's schizophrenic craziness about the government or whatever, and 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 where the daughter wasn't schizophrenic at all, but she just yeah. came in. You know, and and once she was separated from the influence of the mother, much like when cult members are separated from the influence of the leader, sometimes they start thinking again, and the spell starts to leave them, and they're no longer under this metaphysical or psychological control. Mm. You know, so so that's medicalizing it one way. Um, you know, is it a sickness? Is is it an identification sickness? You know, when you look at somebody like Hubbard, um, who, as you said, could not leave this because that was his only real identity. Mm -hmm. He had nothing besides that. He was a zero. He had erased himself. And therefore, for him to to legitimately and completely deny his role as this genius, as this savior of mankind, would mean that he would have to erase his own identity, which human Mm -hmm. beings are very uncomfortable with having no identity, mm. you know, we, we get anxious when we somebody even mispronounces our name, you know, we, we get anxious when they misquote our papers that we've written, uh, we, you know, when, when in other words, when they erase our identity, who we think we are, mm. uh, you know, and, and then on the other side, we, we can feel blessed, you know, by by someone uh, telling us, because they're psychic, uh, that, you know, I think you uh, used to be a soldier with Julius Caesar back 2,000 years ago, and, and you were one of his top people. And and so you say, tell me more, tell me more, you know, I want to hear about this. It massages the identification, you know, so identification become a syndrome, too, if it's a fake ID, hmm. you know, you, you begin to believe in it, kind of like the imposter syndrome. Um now, you know, you have some genius people that are, are are wonderful thinkers, like, let's say, Aristotle. Everybody agrees with that, I think, in his day. Yeah. He made some mistakes, obviously. You know, he thought the brain was a cooling mechanism. He didn't understand it as a neurological, uh, uh, you know, backdrop to the entire oh. human thinking process. Um, but, but he also gave us an enormous amount, a big boost towards sciences. Oh, yeah. You know, when he broke with Plato. You know, so maybe he had some self-doubt. Maybe he thought, you know, being a reasonable man could see his limitations mm-hmm. and uh, didn't see himself as a, as a great man as other people saw him and certainly his legacy. You know, so that would be the opposite of what we're talking about as someone who is not accepting that incredible identity.
1: Two generations before Aristotle, Plato's teacher Socrates, um, right. who explains that that when the sibyl had said that he was the wisest man in the world, he went finding wise people because he thought this was a ridiculous idea. Exactly. So, that, so that's exactly what I'm that. talking
0: about. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's where reason and humility enter into the conversation. Oh. Reason and humility do not exist in the sick man's mind who has an utter investment in their narcissistic identification, mm. you know? So, you know, can we medicalize? It? You know, can we call it a sickness? Can we, you know, is, that's the question. And of course, it's up for debate, which is what we're doing here to mm-hmm. some extent. And I'm, I'm sure uh, some astute sociologists would have an argument. I'd like to hear it, you know, but, but meanwhile, I'm going to push on with this paper <laughs> and see if I can get it published. <laughs> I have nothing to lose. I don't have a PhD. No one's going to take it away from me for coming up with some bullshit idea, you know. Uh, so I, I can go and, and uh, develop this as much as I want. <laughs> it, it's
1: interesting when we come to the point that having a PhD could be seen as a handicap because you've yes, got an identity. And, and, and I think depend. some people
0: see it because they don't want to be uh, hung out to dry by their peers. You know, mm-hmm. well, I have no peers. You know, I'm an artist. You know, so
1: yeah, I, I think we're in very much the the same um, situation. I, I co-wrote a paper for. Uh, I think it was for the Oxford University Press go, who actually published James Lewis's book. So we've got no respect for them anyway. But oh, yeah. um, they they asked me how I should style myself, and it was suggested that I I should call myself a practitioner scholar because I have no qualifications of any kind. Okay, beyond well, that,
0: battle. sounds good. Practitioner yeah. scholar or amateur scholar or a or a uh, uh, what a populist scholar i don't know what word you would use you know because you actually obviously a scholar well i I think uh, practitioners good because
1: um i mean i mean let's not get too literal but as dh lawrence said those who can do and those who can't teach and unfortunately a lot of the academics we're dealing with don't really have never really come to grips with what happens to somebody When their life is devastated and ruined by their Mm -hmm. involvement with the group. They seem, I mean, I've often I've often said it's like, you know, they'd walk through Auschwitz and comment on how nice the pajamas were. Right. You know, that they're focused on they're not focused on on human hurt. And some of them are, you know, it's a liberal idea that that these groups should be allowed to believe what they want to believe. Mm -hmm. But of course, you and I think that groups should be allowed to believe what they want to believe. It's what they're sure. doing that's a problem. Right. And if a group, you know, starves people or or um, our friend uh, Arthur Bookman in um, in Scandinavia, who spent 12 years without seeing another human being at the direction of his cult leader, and they didn't have a little cave in the Himalaya. So they locked him in a room, I think in an apartment or a house. And he did not have human contact for 12 years. Now, well, a, a sociologist might look at that and go, well, that was a matter of his free will. But a psychologist might look at it and say, what do you mean by free will?
0: <laughs> yeah. Let me let me bring out something here in favor of the sociological position here about devi- deviance, mm. medicalizing it. Let's take, for instance, you know, you have a really deranged cult leader who uh, has schizophrenia and, uh and gets people to kill people. Charlie Manson, you know, similar to that, mm. you know. For instance, completely gone. Um, because you medicalize deviants, you put them under a category of some mm-hmm. kind of think. Can he get off with an insanity defense? You know. So now, are you are we protecting them by medicalizing them? That's another question I have. You know, b- because they could end up in court and say, well, this guy. You know, Zimhardt, blah, 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 says, I have a medical condition and I'm not responsible for what I'm doing. You know, so, you know, let's look at it that way. You know, are we letting them off the hook by creating a syndrome out of their behavior, which says they're kind of ill and they're not responsible for all of this? Hmm. Which, you know? which
1: throws us into the whole question of actus reus and mens rea. Yeah. Um, did yeah. they commit the act and did they intend to commit the act? Are yep. they responsible for what happened? Um, mm-hmm. And that this has become, I mean, it's been contentious for, for the last 20 years since the first work started coming through saying that uh, criminal psychopaths, as tested by Kent Keel, Robert Hare's um, student um, initially, that Keel, I think, has now tested more than 500 criminal psychopaths using high resolution fMRI. Right. Magnetic resonance imaging and, and it's in full color, full color, technicolor, oh, yeah. and And he has found that these people have a deficiency in the connection between the old brain, the limbus or ring, I think what the word means, donut, pretty much the old brain and the prefrontal cortex. And there is this, I have come to believe simplistic idea about the old brain and the new brain connection. Um, But on average, so I've read, the psychopath has 7% less material in the connection between the kind of impulsive part of the brain, the old brain, the reptilian brain, uh, and the new thinking, clever part of the brain. And it was put forward in court a couple of decades ago for the first time that if you have this condition, you're born this way. There are are three genetic alleles that can be traced to psychopathy. So you couldn't help it. And at that point, our construction of law
0: falls apart. Um, Except they've been using this way of approaching psychopathic criminals. And and if they can show while they're in prison that they have this condition, and therefore they're more dangerous if we release them because they're not going to change, we'll keep them in prison. So it works. To keep them in, as well, and, and depends on the prison system. But but yeah, it's uh, fascinating because we're in a, a real juncture with with neuroscience and how to how to uh, uh, diagnose or or identify what the human function is. is. Is it delusional? Is it acting in reality? Is it something in between? Is it you know is it being influenced from the outside like mm-hmm. a Folia do? And how do you measure that? You know, I mean, these measuring tools are important because then they're, quote, scientific and uh, reliable, so repeatable. And, uh, and but, there is a, we're, we're kind of in the midst of this research right now, which is we
1: massive. are. And, and all sorts of overconfident claims are still being made. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm a big fan of um, the neurologist Robert A. Burton, um, who, who wrote a lovely book called On Being Certain. But he also wrote A Skeptic's Guide to the Brain. Mm-hmm. and uh, I think it's skeptic's guide to the brain. I've got a copy of it. No, skeptic's guide to the mind, correction. And well, he there's says... There's <laughs> Yeah, there, there certainly is for me. Um, he he was um, head of um, neurology at, at Mount Zion Hospital and a professor at um, the University of California in San Francisco. So So he has some background in the subject. And he basically says, be very careful when you start believing what neurologists profess, and certainly in my reading of you know, Damasio, Ramachandran, and Oliver Sacks, and, and a number of others, there are overconfident claims being made. Um, one of them, which I first read in 1984, and have read pretty much every year since, is in the last 10 years, we've made more progress in neurology than the whole history of neurology up to this point. And that one just keeps trotting out for 40 years now. Um, I think we need to bring reason to bear, and I think we need to skeptic- bring skepticism to bear and be very careful what, what we're doing. The um, Yorkshire Ripper, as he's called in this country, um, Peter Sutcliffe, a man who uh, attacked women with a hammer and beat them to death, mm-hmm. um, was originally uh, a judge basically found, yes, he was crazy, but made a a strange order, which seems to violate law, which said, but he should be kept locked up for life, no matter right. what. And about three years, four years ago, three years ago, he was actually declared sane and moved from Broadmoor Psychiatric Hospital into a prison. And you have this, so how do we know and, and how do we tell, and are we going to say, well, this person has a larger part of the brain here. Yeah, are we now going back to you know the nineteenth century idea that if somebody's eyes are too close together, they're a liar, mm-hmm. which which has right. stayed in the language, you know that. Yeah, but there used to be police charts that we used to say, you know, if you're a big nose, you're a pickpocket. If you've got, you have know, got all sorts of these, are we now going to do this with brain regions? Are we going to go into somewhere there? So I think we we have to be careful. We have to look at behaviours. Um. The folie a deux, the madness of two. There's also the folie a plusieurs, the madness of many, where right. a whole group, and that brings us into mass sociogenic illness. And if you have a, a leader who has a delusive self-reference that, 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 that they think, as Charles Manson did, let's come back to him. He thought he was Manson, son of man. Yes. Jesus Christ, second coming. Um, my god these new ages are literal <laughs> and how and and the truth yeah. is that his father wasn't actually called manson that was no. and his mother married to give him a name yeah. um i think he was called no name maddox when he was born um and he should have stuck with it but that once that delusion enters in then we might also be talking about another condition which is uh, a definite and recognized disorder, and that's temporal lobe epilepsy. Yeah. That it's Yuval Law, the great scholar Yuval that came to me in 2015, a seminar I was giving, getting clears from Clear from Scientology in Toronto. it's the first time we met, and he said, Do you think Ron Hubbard was a temporal lobe epileptic? And I said, I haven't given it much thought. And I remember when it sort of came out in the late seventies and and St. Paul and Mohammed and all sorts of people were tarred with this thing. Um, and he put down the 18 characteristics of the bare for Dio um, index inventory. And it was amazing. I sat there as somebody who spent far too much time studying the life of Ron Hubbard.
0: And I ticked 17 out of 18 straight away. Interesting. Just to let you know. My old cult leader, Elizabeth Clare Prophet, was diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy and did have seizures throughout her life, was not permitted to drive a car ever even when she was guru. You know, wow. so all of this stuff about healing from Ascended Masters, she was the connection to all of the great healers in the heavens, never could heal her epilepsy.
1: That that that's an that's a fascinating revelation because you Yuval- vow has continued to look at other leaders and yeah. that sense of certainty they project the the intense religious experience <clears throat> hypergraphia, the inability yeah. to stop writing L. Ron Hubbard is listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the most prolific author of all time
0: you know just on that line I had a client whose daughter was in some cult and the, the, this middle-aged woman told me about her life and she had this form of epilepsy and and when the aura would come on her prior to that because she didn't always have a seizure with Mm. she said she could have written five novels her her imagination was just flying Mm. when that pre-seizure aura came upon her um you know and she did a lot of creative stuff but it wasn't organized very well but apparently for some reason for some people that disease induces a kind of weird creativity.
1: Yeah, wasn't organized very well. That's Not the in statement. the end, no. That's the statement about Hubbard too. There are 28 books in Scientology outside of the collections of various things. Of those 28 books, 27 were written by other people. Dianetics and Modern Science of Mental Health, or Mental Science of Modern Health, as I like to think of it, um, was written by Hubbard. He claimed four years after writing it to a woman called Jo Scott in London that it was the product of automatic writing dictated to him by the Empress, Carly, Mm -hmm. who we've already encountered in this episode. Um, His tutelary divinity, as they say, or genius, to use the old-fashioned word for it. Um, But the other 27 books, you know, Signs of Survival, his second book was compiled from this disorganized scramble of recordings and writings that he'd made, he recorded things on little green discs, um, was put together by Richard DeMille, um, whose father, Cecil B. DeMille, was even more famous than Ron Hubbard, made Ben-Hur, um, and he who he, he went on to become a psychology professor after he'd abandoned Hubbard, but he wrote three of Hubbard's books. Then there was Alfie Hart, he wrote Scientology 8.80. And every book after, from 54 to 78 was written and, and from Hubbard's notes, but that inability to organize the material, which is such an aspect of Scientology that nothing is ever canceled. Nothing goes away, even when it completely comes. Interestingly,
0: conscious. just to bring this up, Blavatsky was a prolific writer. She would mm-hmm. stay up for days and just pages would fly off her desk. They were yeah. very poorly organized. Uh, Olcott and others had to edit them. Put the punctuation in arrange them because Blavatsky had no mind for that kind of organization you know but mm-hmm. she was prolific in that sense and she could you know speak different languages uh you know because she was european obviously and mm-hmm. had to learn these as she traveled but but as far as uh organization though no. uh you know the, which which i find interesting and we we are sort of homing in on something that might well be a sin oh let me bring up one more point the big one the course in miracles it was Mm -hmm. published it was written over a course of seven years where this woman ellen shookman was hearing this voice which was she claimed was jesus you know dictating this stuff to her and would not let her alone until she was finished every night she Mm -hmm. couldn't even sleep she had to write this stuff out for seven years and then it was done and then it became this pile of manuscripts that her and bill thetford her boss at the hospital decided what to do with because he would listen to her recite this stuff every day and he would help write it down um but what she had written down had no punctuation no paragraphs it was just run-on sentences and they got this editor who was a jewish fellow that was a former catholic seminarian (laughs) put that together and he decided to edit it and he made sense of it you know so in a way he shaped it into what we have today it it didn't come out of the mouth of god so to speak originally in that situation you can say the same about a lot of sacred scriptures perhaps in the quran to some Mm -hmm. extent Uh, because it it was was recited it wasn't written you know there was a scribe that knew how to write that wrote it down mm -hmm. you know that would punctuate and do all of that kind of thing so the original original inspiration is kind of a mess you have to find you know, and, and you find this with people that are channelers that channel information, you know, it it, it just pours out and flows. Uh, it's not really well-organized information, you know, unless they planned it ahead of time, which some do, you know, they plan like a lecture, they rehearse it, and then they claim that, you know, the great God Ra is channeling it through me. And it sounds like a, a you know, a dissertation from a college student, uh, you know, his first few pages or something, uh, which means it's been prepared. But but anyway, I just wanted to bring that up that, that that maybe have something to do with this malfunction or dysfunction in the temporal lobe.
1: Yeah, we should probably round up a 100 cult leaders and, and give them brain scans and yeah. um, see what we can find out. We missed out on
0: it. So many of them are dead.
1: Oh, there are <laughs> plenty more popping up. <laughs> OK, well, we'll try again. Yeah.
0: And maybe if we get them young, you know, and can do a Yeah, be, when they're study. naive enough and narcissistic enough to want to prove to the world that they really have a brain special that brain. working you know in sync with god yeah. yeah. that would be yeah. good yeah. that would be the thing to do but
1: yeah i i think i mean i i've been in the last few years coming towards the same idea that there seem to be certain types of personality who You know, Eric Fromm's definition of the narcissist, I think, is very good. The malignant narcissist Um, that. Contrary to Freud's thinking, a narcissist is not a person who loves himself, a person who don't know how to love and they need adulation from others to have any sense of self or standing in the world. Right. It's, It's a matter of
0: wanting others to love a version of themselves that they're inventing. Yes. Yes, and that continue to feedback on that outside version of themselves, and don't look behind the curtain. Don't look at that little guy doing the, the you know, the uh, standing on the stool with a megaphone behind the curtain. The right, wizard, right. Yeah, just keep your eye on the wizard. You know, don't mm. don't look at that little insecure guy that, that's behind the curtain. I mm. mean, that that's kind of like the Hollywood version of the narcissist, the Great Wizard of Oz, mm. but um, a benign narcissist, if you want.
1: hard to tell really with the wizard and i think frank frank baum's original novels are are quite remarkable that no they're
0: they're they're quite richer in in in, yeah you know i've read them and and nothing like the hollywood version no Uh, you know there's a lot of differences a lot more nuances about the aspects of the human psyche which you can find in there and it's kind of a modern mythology if you will which is, is is very rich you know um yeah
1: Absolutely, it, it, and it, and it 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 shows an author who is trying to explain a perception of of the world and people through a great story. You know, say as yeah. you know, in Gulliver's Travels, we we find out about a great deal about politics in the 18th century if we look closely, oh, yeah. um, and about human nature throughout the ages. But so I think there is something to be said, and on the other hand, you you know. You have the type of people who are attracted to such groups. And I would say that that that's probably 98% of the population. The 2% I'm going to exclude are psychopaths. Because yeah. even when, and I did in Scientology, most certainly meet some psychopaths who had found, I remember one guy, he came up to me on the street and he was a very high level Scientologist who I'd known years before. And he came up to me and, and smiled at me and and said that um uh, he'd stayed in Scientology because Scientologists were so much easier to prey on than other people
0: interesting and yeah. uh you
1: know so but it, apart from you know and, and you certainly got narcissistic sales people they they were a commonplace people who would uh mm-hmm. sell you stuff and uh then when you said, it's got a lifetime guarantee, they say, well, that wasn't your lifetime or its lifetime. It's the lifetime of somebody who's dead. And your guarantee is worth nothing. You know. Um, wow. So, And Ariel Moreri in in studying suicide bombers and and his and Anne Speckhart and Kaptur Akhmadova's work, there may be more recent work I don't know about, but they're the only people I know of who actually studied terrorists. There are a lot of people who've talked about it, but Morari studied hundreds of uh, failed bombers, relatives of bombers uh, over a period of decades and did come to the conclusion that you'd find more people who suffered from the dependent personality disorder among the actual suicide bombers, not among the people who recruited them or the so-called engineers who made the bombs. But there was, you know, there were slightly more generally in my experience of people who've been in so-called cults what i would call destructive cults or authoritarian cults you find every type of person um oh, yeah. but among the leaders there seem to be a set of criteria uh, one of which is thinking you're all that you know mm-hmm. um, thinking you are you know as maharaji and Rajneesh said that you are god you are the right. you know what's
0: interesting when you talk about the leaders they they very rarely I mean it's, it's happened a few times here and there maybe incidentally where the 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 cult leaders have conventions among themselves and you know discuss reality and all that 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 rarely happens because the narcissistic load almost prevents it you know everyone is a fake and I'm the only true one is is mm-hmm. is what's what's driving that what's interesting I remember in in Santa Fe uh, when I lived there there was a at the main hotel in downtown, the La Fonda, um, uh, there was a convention of astrologers. This is back in the late 70s and early 80s, I think. And I I was doing portraits right on the plaza. And I would go into La Fonda sometimes to get coffee. They had a great coffee shop. Hmm. And I sat with a few of the astrologers because they were on break you know, from their talks. And there was a couple hundred or more there. And one of them told me this one young guy, he said, you know, if if you want to be around people who never agree with one another, he says, come to one of these conventions, you know, because (laughs) it's such a subjective art Mm -hmm. that, you know, Pisces to one astrologer with, with, uh, you know, uh, uh, opposite the moon and with the Saturn return and all this means one thing and they influence their client to see it a certain way. And it'll mean something else to another astrologer who maybe favors Jungian interpretation of, of astrology, you know. And 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 so it's so nuanced, it's so subjective that they have a hard time agreeing on anything, mm-hmm. you know. But they all get along; they're friendly, and you know all of that good stuff. So. one man's uh, fish
1: is another man's poisson, if you'll excuse me. There you me. go. Um, the, yeah, the and again with academics, you know. I, I mean. Um, and and of course, also with you know, in Scientology, you have this idea that all of the psychiatrists, psychotherapists, and psychologists are in a conspiracy to destroy all life in the universe. And you're going, mm. well, for me, two psychiatrists or two psychologists talking is like two rabbis talking. There'll be three different opinions. You know, yeah. it's just all there yeah. is to it.
0: Um, no, I, I've worked with a lot of psychiatrists, and you know, of course, in general, when you're working in a crisis hospital. There's, there's a pretty good agreement about which medications mm. to apply to which patient. They're, yeah. they're good at this, you know, because they know the results and they know yeah. you know, doing some labs or whatever on the patient and they can adjust them as time goes on. But there can be major conflicts based on the diagnosis. One person will say bipolar, another one will say schizophrenia, another one will say psychotic disorder, NOS, not otherwise specified, which means almost anything goes and and give them Haldol, you know, which is like a universal drug for psychosis, <laughs> and and it works temporarily, mm-hmm. but but th- there is some organized sanity in that field, you know. It's not as crazy as people think it is, because I've been in the midst of it. But but there is there is deviance from one psychiatrist to another, and and uh, some of them I work with were quite nutty in their own beliefs, their personal beliefs. Like one psychiatrist, a lady I knew that would bring her little dog in with her to work, you know, it was, you know, for some reason she was allowed to, she was going to see Sylvia Brown and paying lots of money to get psychic readings. You know, and I I said, are you kidding me? And and I blurted that out and she goes, well, what do you mean? Don't you like Sylvia Brown? And I said, well, so I backed up and I, I explained to her that some of sylvia brown's predictions were so blatantly off you Mm -hmm. know that that she had made that she stopped doing political predictions after a while and uh and i said well how did your readings go with her and she says you know thinking back they weren't all that great (laughs) so and yet this md medical doctor that's treating people's psychiatric disorders believes in that stuff you know so Mm -hmm. you got to let it go to some extent but but at the same time i had a little bit of an effect on her by just bringing up a little skeptical remark about the predictive value of this woman's abilities yeah you know so yeah
1: yeah Yeah, we we have this thing here that that we see in tv shows about how psychics have helped the police and a, a friend of mine wrote to all 40 41 police forces in united kingdom and said how often has a psychic helped you? And half of them didn't reply. And the other half said, never.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. But, yeah. Um, that's, that's been the conclusion in most states in the US. Yeah, They won't allow it. And, and a lot of states won't allow lie detectors, for instance, because of the pseudoscience behind lie detection. It works to some degree, but it's not a foolproof but technique the, for determining. The, the
1: guy who, who initiated the use of, of um, polygraphs, um, there's a great book called Tremors in the Blood about the history of, of it, said um, that, that the polygraph is fundamentally um, a psychological form of third degree, third degree being beating somebody until they answer. It's a way of scaring people into confessing it in right. and of itself. It is a completely worthless instrument. It measures. Right. I think some thing.
0: people come into it thinking they're looking at an instrument as the eye of God or the, you know, yeah. th- they're, they're being seen. And Mm -hmm. they have to tell the truth. The instrument itself creates that in some people and other people that are psychopathic look at that instrument and they lie through their teeth and they get away with it Yeah, because they're not, there's no reaction. The machine's not picking up a reaction. Yeah,
1: It's a form of what Robert J. Lifton would call sacred science. It's not not actually a scientific instrument.
0: John, Um, I've got to go here in about three minutes to go see my mom and a social worker. Uh, So any last words? I I have no uh, idea how my paper is going to come out, but I, Thank you very much for allowing us to discuss it mm. and to see if uh, cult leader syndrome is a thing.
1: It, so, it's a, a fascinating idea. Thank you for bringing it to us. And yeah. once you've produced your paper, your article, then um, let's talk about it again.
0: You know, Wonderful. Yeah. Know, I'll run time. a bio, I'll email you a copy for YouTube Redmark. Fantastic. Thank you. Great. <laughs> I got to go. Time. Have a good day, my friend.
1: Yeah, you too, hi, John! Here, thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you would click like" as well as subscribe and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps, and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. We can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much.